2: Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. Today we're talking about international development. What is the future for foreign aid? How have the scandals affected perception of the sector? And does Brexit suggest a turning of opinion against it? I'm Progress Deputy Editor Connor Pope, and I'm joined by my colleagues Stephanie Lloyd and Hena Shah, and our guest today, the CEO of Charity United Purpose, Catherine Llewellyn. There's been major scandals recently involving aid charities such as Save the Children and Oxfam. Catherine, how worried are people in the aid sector about the effect this has had on public perception?
3: Yeah, I mean, when when the scandal sort of first broke, I think there was real concern amongst the sector about like what it was going to mean for donations for everybody. And, you know, there's already been, well, there's been for years a kind of a slowly building narrative attack in the 0.7 and this was kind of felt like just another blow to it so there's definitely concern and I think I think even more than with the actual INGOs the concern with donors so you know the Department for International Development amongst a whole heap of other donors have really upped their game in terms of what their expectations are around safeguarding for us as organizations and I think like there's pros and cons to it. Like some of the things that were going on, like shouldn't be happening. So I think there is a, it's it's a difficult one. Cause it's like, you get a bit scared to be able to say, oh, well that wasn't right. And that was wrong because you don't want to be feeding into the, the narrative of aid is bad, but like all these things, it kind of gives you a bit of a shake up and makes you think, okay, you know, are we doing the right things? Mm. Have we got the right checks in? But it's, but it's a bit deeper than that, I think you know I don't think that this particular issue with Oxfam and save the children is has kind of been all about safeguarding issues. I think it's about the broader agenda around attack on aid
2: mm. i I think that's that's right, isn't it there feels certainly with the brexit vote there's a feeling that people wanted Britain generally to be kind of more removed from the world stage and a lot more kind of protectionist Hannah Steph uh, do you think international aid is And popular? And and what do you think we need to kind of do about that?
0: I think the problem is, is there's a real misunderstanding of what it is, where it goes, the impact that it has. And, you know, it's very easy for the kind of daily mail narrative of populism in politics at the moment to be like, look at all this money that's being wasted. You haven't got, you know, what you need. People are going to food banks in our country, why aren't we helping our own people before we help others and this kind of real othering and that being the problem. And if we get rid of that, then we'll solve all of our problems. And, and actually we know that fundamentally that's just factually incorrect. We know that the reason why more people are on food banks now is because of government choices. That's not to say that we don't have the money or the necessity to be able to support developing countries and particularly the kind of global South in terms of how that works. And, There is a real kind of withdrawal from that. But I think that's also because there's been a real lack of ability for uh, people on the kind of centre left and left to be able to really articulate why this matters. Mm. And actually, one of the things that gives me hope sometimes is when you see kind of prominent Tory ministers and people like Theresa May saying it's actually a pillar to our foreign aid strategy. And actually, you know, when they're the people that come out and defend it, it's far more powerful at times than when the kind of usual suspects come out and, and defend mm. lots of this stuff.
1: I think it's also an indication of a sort of broader shift, as you said, Steph, in values and what we think in politics as a whole. And I think we see this with attacks on the press and with lots of other things that's, that have been happening in politics recently, that perhaps we've become a little bit complacent as a society about you know, charity is a good thing. Why is it a good thing? International aid is a good thing to the point where as a sort of culture, we've stopped making the arguments. We've stopped going from first principles. I think we've done this on a lot of things and saying, why is it a fundamentally positive thing for other countries to have people that have the same opportunities as people in this country do? Um, Why is it fundamentally a positive thing for everyone who have, you know, is of a different background or a different colour or from a different family to have the same chances as everyone else. And I think we're sort of list, we're sort of missing that moral explanation and that moral argument at the moment. And that's something that's a space we need to try and fill. And actually, as you said, Catherine, with the things that have been happening now around safeguarding, that's become really problematic because the sort of
0: that lets the moral argument fail somewhat. The one thing, I mean, I agree with you, but the one thing that I do think is a bit different on some of this stuff as well is it, I don't think it's just a moral argument because I think a huge part of this as well is people's inability to want to trust the establishment in the way that it works, right? So if you see, even what, you know, if people watch um, kind of children need and all the rest of it, the millions and millions of pounds from people's pockets pour out in terms of what they want to give. You see what happened last year with Grenfell when there was utter devastation. People's ability to want to give was there. I think what there is, is a huge lack of trust in the sector in, in ways that are deeply unfair and have been perpetuated by a lot of this, you know, w- wanting to chip away at the legitimacy of the sector and what it does. But I think the the dangerous thing about the scandal with, say, the children in Oxfam and, and everything that went with that is, it again, it just plays into that hand of you can't trust the establishment in terms of what already happens, the money's just being wasted. It's just being squandered. It's not going to the right places. And I think that's the bit that's quite dangerous. I think is that anti-establishment feeds into this narrative.
3: Yeah, I mean, I it's interesting because I, I, I also think there's this other component which is, I'm mean, depending on you know who we're talking about. But if you're talking about kind of, you know, people who are suffering, you know, because of the changes in our economic situation, and people who are in food banks and struggling it's very hard to make a moral argument to them about what they should be doing. And, you know, it's one of the things I always try and think about, you know, I I run the charity United Purpose and we exist so that, you know, parents all around the world um, can have control as to whether they feed or educate their child and they're not dependent on the benevolence of others. And, you know, that they have self-determination and agency. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very difficult because I mean, I, I'm not in a position where I'm wondering about, you know, where my next meal's coming from. And so I think, you know, that we need to be, we need to find a different way of engaging with people around these sorts of issues. And I think, you know, depoliticizing it, because the the argument on the other side is, if we weren't giving this money away, you'd be better off. It's simple, it's not accurate, you know, And, and we've got to try and find a way of simplifying it back around. And, you know, I always think about... Like I come from, you know, a pretty working class family and, you know, lots of the, you know, my my family are in a position where, you know, when we were growing up, they had to work, you know, really hard, long hours. And when I started doing this sort of work, they didn't get it and they couldn't really relate to it and, you know, probably had a particular set of viewpoints on it. But then the second, you know, I can come back and talk about a very specific woman that I met in Malawi and be like, oh, she's like you when you, like when we were Mm. kids, like she's a hairdresser and she does this on the side and she's got a Mm. pyramid scheme and she's (laughs) doing this and this and this. And all of a sudden it's like, it's relatable, you know, it's Mm. not about a big political stance and are you morally on this side or this side? Mm. It's about human beings, like finding a way to connect. And I think, yeah, you know, I just think we've got to be quite careful about, like, you know, moralizing to people, which I think was, mm. you know, some of the challenges when the other side of the argument is so simplified mm. and realistically mm. so.
2: Can you tell us a little bit more about what United Purpose does? You, you were talking there about um, how you want to give people control, which which seems to be a kind of big part of of your thing, which I, I quite like as a phrase. It was like a take back control, but with international solidarity added in. Uh, what, what, what does <laughs> what does that really mean? How can that be achieved?
3: Yeah. I mean I started out my kind of development career uh, working with trade unionists in uh, sub-Saharan Africa and I think that I like for me it just gave me in fact it was impossible to pity trade unionists in sub-Saharan Africa because they're just the most incredible organized like brave people I, I could ever encounter and so you know I my view of poverty and people living in poverty it was kind of through a lens of trade union and actually student union activists living in sub-saharan africa and like the most powerful things i've ever seen is when it's done on solidarity not pity and when you're actually genuinely like listening to what people want and stand alongside them to kind of help mobilize it and I was shocked when I kind of went from that kind of space into the kind of more traditional aid sector where, you know, there's, there's amazing people doing amazing work. But I think there's, you know, there's still that kind of dynamic around, well, for example, we call the people we work with beneficiaries. You know, So, you know, if if you're a rural Malawian woman who 95% of the people you deal with are aid workers and you're called a beneficiary all the time, like what power dynamic does that line up? Or, you know, you're an agency that's got a strategy all about delivering water. So I'm coming to you telling you, you're going to have water off me because that's my strategy. And I just, you know, I think we need all these components and like an overall, there's amazing things happening, but I feel like there's, there is a power dynamic there around how we do development that isn't right and is part of the blocker for sustainability. And so, you know, what we try and do is go in and try and listen to what people want and to try and mobilize things around them so that in essence, you know, they're in control of their development, that you're mobilizing things in ways that aren't around kind of you know, can we sustain this one thing it's about, can you help that individual become self-sustaining and resilient rather than the project that you're Mm. delivering? We don't always get it right and all the other things, but like, I think it's a, it's a philosophy and a stance that I think more and more organizations should take, particularly in the light of, you know, some of the scandals that have unfolded.
2: Uh, We just need to take a quick break, but we'll be talking a bit more about that just after this.
1: My name is Jasmine Beckett and I'm standing for the Labour Party's National Executive Committee. Along with my fellow centre-left candidates for the NEC, we are campaigning for Labour Party members to have a say on Brexit at Labour Party conference. All members want a say on the biggest issue facing our country at the moment. You can sign up to the campaign now at laboursay.eu. Catherine, how
2: has international development changed over the past couple of decades and what what are the priorities for it now?
3: Yeah I mean you know there's been significant change I think you know you kind of you think about the history of kind of where international development comes from it's kind of a missionary past that's Mm. then been all volunteers that's professionalized and you know I would say that you know there's been the professionalization of our our sector has been great actually and I know that there's still people who feel like charity should still be done for free and but actually you know we're not we're not charity workers we're actually people who go in and and deliver infrastructure programs and health systems you know it's almost kind of it's evolved into you know I think something that we could all be really proud of I think there's still a way to go and I think you know part of part of the challenge we still have as a sector is kind of is, is donor priorities. I always think, you know, again, you just think about somebody, you know, based in a rural community in Guinea who, you know, almost their entire life is dependent on strategies of governments outside of their country and aid organisations outside of their countries. And, you know, I still feel like they're, we've got a way to go in, in order to, you know, really be delivering for the people we exist for. But I, I'm really proud of like the shifts that are have happened and are continuing to happen.
1: I would agree with that but I think there are also certainly to come off what you said certain challenges. so I'm a trustee at a street children's charity and what we do is we support students and others to raise money for a number of projects that support street children or street associated children um, around the world and one of the problems that these people face consistently, particularly if they're small organizations, is a fact, I'm sure you've found this too, is the number of funds that are restricted for certain things. And that comes part and parcel with the professionalization of the service. So you have a big donor who it's in their interest or their personal pet project is to deliver a big school, but actually the problem in that area isn't the number of schools, but it's making sure that students have a way to reach the school. And I think a big part of looking at how it will change over sort of the next 50 to 100 years is how can we make sure that we're using that money in the most effective way and how we actually erase a broader power dynamic that's not even between the aid worker and the person they're serving, but between the people who are offering the funds to the aid organisations in order to do
0: that work. The, the thing I find quite interesting, I suppose that I'd be interested to know what you think on it, Catherine, is obviously you know of Oxfam and Save the Children. Like those are the kind of, the, you've got the day-to-day household names that everybody's aware of. But obviously when I was looking at really kind of in depth into to you guys over the last year or so, obviously the reach that you've got is huge, but obviously the, the kind of name recognition isn't there. Is that a real challenge to lots of kind of, International development agencies, in terms of how that works and that kind of being able to raise that kind of money and profile?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's always a bit of a dilemma. You know, I've worked for organizations where like the brand and the marketing has almost been better than the substance of the delivery. And it's one of the things that, like, when I came into United Purpose, it was like, oh my gosh, we've just got the right problem. We do this amazing development work and no one's ever heard of us. But it, you know, it is a challenge. There are, in reality, too many of us competing for a smaller, mm. smaller pool of funding, and I think that's going to become tougher and tougher over time. And so, one of the things that we have been um, doing is actually merging, um, proactively merging with other organisations, in order to try and ensure that we can kind of create an organisation that's going to be sustainable in the future and preserve the great bits and manage up the other bits i mean you've got some of these smaller organizations that you know like their values are amazing and they've got this incredible supporter Mm -hmm. base but because of the way the market's changed and regulations like sometimes they're spending as much as 60 percent of -hmm. what they raise on just trying to keep raising Mm -hmm. that funding and so You know, I I do think there does need to be a change in terms of thinking about, you know, how we need to structure the organisations, the number we need, given the way that the funding is shifting. And we just always got to remember that it's not about our organisation or our organisational strategy. It's got to remember it's about impact all the time. And it's tough to do when it's your job and your organisation and your strategy. But we've got to. We've got to be willing to park, you know, our egos and our organisations mm. and be like, is this delivering the best for the people that we're set up to deliver on? And if it's not, then we've got to be brave and make a change.
2: Uh, you were talking there about how the funding pool is... Is getting smaller. I know Britain is one of, I think, only six countries to meet the UN target for aid spending of 0.7% of gross national income. Um, Hannah, I know this was something that that you found interesting in in looking at this stuff before today's podcast. Um, Is that money still going where it should?
1: Uh, That's a loaded question. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Never.
2: Never.
0: Not
1: on this podcast. Not on this podcast. (laughs) I think it's interesting. I think over... So just before we came on, I was reading a little bit about the recent politics behind the 0.7%. And it's clear to me, and I think it's been clear in the narrative that obviously, as a Brexit vote has happened, as we've seen the rise of populism in our own country, and we've sort of started a bent towards being more isolationist, we can see that having an effect on the 0.7% and not firstly its existence and secondly where it goes and who it goes to so obviously the this target was set up by the UN and there are sort of a strict set of criteria upon which it's judged so it has to be to uh, one of a certain set of countries and it has to be for a specific purpose um and we see now not necessarily becoming, f- think maybe flexible is a bit of an exaggeration but it's clear that our priorities of a nation as a nation have changed so we're changing the countries that we donate to uh, or we offer money to and also the kinds of projects that we offer money to And I think that's very dangerous I think the use of aid as a foreign policy tool is something that one will happen because in a pragmatic well, yes, you have to use aid money as a way to realize soft power, but also two, you can't do this to the detriment of putting the money where it's needed most. And I think at this point we're starting to flip towards the how can we use this money as a tool for our own power as opposed to what, in my opinion, it should be for, which is to redress some of the problems that we've created as a nation.
2: Yeah, Catherine just just on that what what do you think about the the, the way that the aid money has kind of changed um recently?
3: Yeah, I mean firstly, I, you know, I think that the 0.7 is brilliant. It's, I think it's amazing that you know we that we won that battle and I think it's it's amazing that kind of all the political parties are aligning mm. to mm. protect it. I think I think there's very different politics and reasons for why that's happening but I I still think it's amazing I think of you know what it stands for and symbolizes in the world and you know hopefully it inspires other countries to follow suit you know it is it's a very tricky one because you know we are seeing more and more disasters due to climate issues which mean there are shifts in priorities there you know the number of fragile states is increasing and you know it, it I I think there will be shifts in priority and I think some of them are going to be needed because of the risk needed to be the response to climate um the impact of climate change plus conflict but if if it does happen I think it needs to be transparent I think it needs to be debated I think the the risk and the fear is that things get sneakily aligned to other agendas and I think that you know then there isn't a debate about it there isn't a kind of consensus and a yeah, an idea about is it right to prioritise across this place because of these changing factors. And, you know, I'm with you. Like, I I personally don't believe that, you know, the 0.7 should be diverted into other budget spends sneakily. Like, you know, because I also think that it's unfair then in terms of when you're trying to defend a 0.7 if actually it's not actually being spent in the way that it's being, you know, portrayed to. So for me, it's all about that transparency and being able to have, a debate about a reprioritization and but I think it is inevitably gonna happen and you know there is a worry about that I have to say about countries you know like Malawi who you know are desperately poor but a very stable and highly mm. unlikely going to become a fragile state. And so what happens then to the poor people who you know have been dependent on, aid structures for a long time when they're no longer a priority and for me it makes it even more urgent and important that the kind of development we're doing is about empowering individuals to have independence over their own lives because you know if that shift comes before people have it it leaves people desolate with Mm. no other options
0: I think it's why on that sense as well, I think it's why what we were talking about earlier, like winning that argument within the Conservative Party is almost more important than winning the argument elsewhere because firstly, they're in government.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> um,
0: but also, you know, we saw under the last Labour government that they doubled the A budget within the time that they were in government. I don't think that argument is not a difficult argument to have within the Labour Party at the last election. There was a very firm commitment in the manifesto to, to kind of upholding the 0.7, but... As you say, this is the difficult bit then when it comes to the Conservative Party where there's a, you know, a slither of which have quite a lot of power, understand the reasons why it is so fundamental that we have that aid budget and have that kind of moral imperative to be able to do it. But it then means that otherwise they, you know, there is that drift then that they proclaim to their backbenches as we see with Brexit, as we see with mm-hmm. lots of other issues of the more extreme fringes of the Conservative Party that want us to literally put up the walls, pull up the drawbridge and move away from all of it. And I think... That's the that's the public narrative that has to be won over because you have to make it politically impossible for them to be able to do those things.
3: Yeah. I mean it's quite interesting because I've actually met some Conservative Party members who are on the on the right of the Conservative Party who mm. have politics so different to to my own who have actually got a real passion and love for international development. Like mm. they've they've actually been there, seen mm. the impact. I mean, it's it's quite interesting, like the power of you know, the sector having mobilised, taking MPs over mm. to see what's happened. And I think, yeah, I mean, it's it was it's it's quite interesting when you kind of hear somebody who you've met like talking about international issues who've been really understanding and and then you you know you hear their other politics and you're kind of like, I cannot possibly be the same. Somewhat of a juxtaposition between the two. You
0: know, we've got Nigel Farage coming back to frontline politics <laughs> now. This would do wonders. For
2: me. <laughs> Is it um difficult to fundraise for aid charities? Um Stephanie was saying obviously you don't have the the same name recognition as, as some of the other big charities. And how, how does United Purpose do it?
3: Yeah, I mean the predominantly our funding uh, comes from uh, these sort of contracts that you win from the big institutional donors. So mm. we yeah, we win a lot of those big kind of multi-million, multi-year contracts, um, which is great because it means you can deliver, you know, change mm-hmm. at, at scale. And we've kind of got a really a supportive, you know, base of of donors. I think the reality is that, you know, with the changes in um in law around data, with you know, the previous scandal to this scandal about us hounding people with uh, telephone calls for direct debits. And it, you know, it is, it's a tough space to think that that's going to be kind of the future. And so, you know, as, as, as bad as it is, it does put you in a position where you have to start being more creative and thinking about, you know, first of all, how can you be as cost effective as possible? I think, you know, we are, incredibly lean by necessity but i quite like it i think it's quite a it's it's a good position to be in that you're always thinking do we need that should we do that Mm. you know and you really are watching the pennies because you have to and it's also kind of created an environment across our country programs where People are thinking innovatively about funding and the consequence of it has been that, you know, we have quite a few social enterprises that have been Mm -hmm. set up, which are self-sustaining. Like in Malawi, um, actually off the back of a DFID grant, we set up a microfinance uh, program Mm -hmm. that is now... um, one of the biggest microfinance operations um in Malawi serving purely the rural poor and it's completely self-sufficient, independent from us, it'll, you know, exist beyond us, which is in every what we're meant to exist for. And so we've got more and more of those sorts of initiatives, which I think are not only important for um, you know, us as organizations, but it's this important piece about what happens beyond aid and moving people beyond aid and leaving infrastructures behind that are you know based on market systems that don't need the constant refunding of aid um but we've also uh been looking at other kind of forms of innovative finance that not only create sustainable funding for the communities but us as an organization and one of the interesting things that we've uh, developed so i mean, don't know if you know about this but i didn't know but it's so okay it to united purpose but there's um carbon credits which mm. get create generated off the back a certain development program so there's lots of um, fuel-efficient stoves which mean that people use half the amount of uh, wood which means there's less trees being cut down and there's a carbon saving that gets turned into credits sold on a market and and the same is happening with water with the premise being that if people have clean water they're not needing to boil it to make it clean Mm -hmm. less wood Mm -hmm. etc and so we've been doing this as of a lot of organizations for quite a long time we've been essentially it's not a word carbonizing our development programs um but the issue had been that we had basically companies that would own and register that carbon other companies that would sell it and it's just completely untransparent about how much was being bought and sold and we we found out that actually you know the, so sometimes for carbon that we were getting maybe 50 pence a ton for it was being sold for 7 pounds on the market and all of that profit being taken by for profit companies and so it kind of annoyed me and I was like <laughs> 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 understand <laughs> what we're going to do about that you know it's something fundamentally wrong with the system where you know poor, vulnerable people are changing their behaviour to improve our climate, and other people are making profits off it. So we've set up our own um, carbon trading business, very random, uh, and we now generate and sell our own carbon credits, with the idea being that the profits go back to the communities themselves so that they can reinvest it. So when it comes to water, it means that that water pump can be maintained for 21 years. And we've got a particular case in Malawi where there was um, a big enough surplus that they, the community then invested it into a maternal health clinic that's now got electricity and water. And um, and so, you know, it isn't it isn't innovative in that we haven't created a market. We're just disrupting one that I don't think is very fair.
2: Right. If people want to kind of get involved in volunteering in humanitarian work, uh, more less at home without having to go to sub-Saharan Africa. How how might how might <laughs> people do that?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, we we want we want more people to become involved with us, obviously. I think there's you know, there's so many ways now. I, I it isn't just about kind of doing the fundraising events mm-hmm. and although I you know, i think people well, one should my, still do. One that. of
0: my friends Beth cycled hundred miles the other week for you United I
3: mean? Purpose. Yeah. Wow.
0: Give her a little shout out. She's raised <laughs> she, she did
3: an amazing job, yeah, amazing. <laughs> Um, but there's so many ways now like you know around kind of so using social media mm-hmm. there's people's skills with technology like I just feel like people shouldn't be worried that you know if it isn't that I can't give or it isn't that I'm not going to be doing this fundraising mm-hmm. event like people should reach out to charities and ask mm-hmm. how else they can get engaged because you know it's one of the things that I'm really passionate about is how do we like what's the next version of everyone giving a five or a month mm-hmm. yeah because that's kind of done i mean yeah. i mean there's still there is still some happening and i encourage it give a fiver mm. a month but <laughs> <laughs> you know it's not it's, it's of a different generation actually yeah. those direct debit giving yeah. and, I, and i think we really have to think about how we can get creative about how people you know the younger generation now can engage with these issues and on a solidarity basis mm. not this kind of oh i feel really bad about that poor person over there let's give a fiver you know it's about You know seeing something in that person you see in yourself and wanting to stand alongside them and i think yeah i think we need to get creative so i would just say like reach out and and ask like don't be worried Mm. that you're going to get a door slam because you're not willing to (laughs) raise money or give money i think we've evolved a bit past that that point
2: brilliant that's so interesting i'm afraid that's all we've got time for but uh catherine thank you so much for coming in
3: thank you very much cheers Every week, we
0: ask a political pub quiz question that's then answered on Friday's show. So, Connor, what's the uh, question this week?
2: Martha Osmore wants one of the designations for her peerage to be in Nigeria, but she is not the first member of the House of Lords to choose a location in Nigeria for their designation. Who was
0: Ooh, I don't know. This is an interesting one. So send your answers to office at progressonline.org.uk or on Twitter at progressonline uh, and you could win a progress mug. Ooh.
2: We need to wrap up now, but we've been delighted to have, to have Catherine Llewellyn joining us today. Send in your questions and comments through Twitter, email or best of all as an iTunes review and we will respond to them on Friday's show with the best iTunes comment winning a prize. And don't forget to subscribe and rate. Thanks for listening.
3: listening to the
0: progressive britain podcast the music was when in the west by blue dot sessions licensed under creative commons and many thanks to the brilliant caroline crampton who produced this podcast